This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And good evening, everybody. Welcome to the program. We are certainly glad that you've chosen to be with us on this Tuesday evening on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. So thank you so much for being with us here on the program. As I said, we are thrilled to have you. We don't have that many episodes left in the year, and a lot of political shows have already started to shut down. We have one more week of shows, and then it is Christmas, so we're going to be you know, looking for that. And don't forget that we will also be having our big Festivus special, so very much looking forward to that as well. I already have confirmation Laura Clark has agreed to do that with me, and so we will be giving you more details on that. Uh, the plan is to do what we do every year and have it air on Festivus, there have been some things recently that suggest that that may not be something we're able to do, but we will keep you apprised of the situation and let you know what all is going on a little bit closer to time. But right now, it looks like everything is a go, and we will hire a Festivus special. I don't know for a fact it'll be on the 23rd, but it is going to be coming out soon. And what since we're talking about days that are really important, I wanted to really discuss one thing that is important to me on a personal level. Today is my grandfather's birthday, and so uh, he's he's just he's probably the person that I admire most more than anybody else. He's lived an amazing life. He's a Bronze Star recipient. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge in Germany. Uh, the guy's my hero, and deserves every bit of that. I mean, he not only fought the Nazis, and I'm not talking about you know some random punk kid that weighs ninety pounds on the street running up and punching a person for wearing a MAGA hat. I'm talking about actual real Nazis, ones that actually did hate the Jews and believed in fascism and all that. He fought those guys. And so uh, he did that. But then to me, what's even more important and more impressive about his life, because as great as it is that he's an American hero and, and ought to be, you know, given every bit of acknowledgement that, that he deserves from that, the thing that even if he had never gone to Germany, even if he had been ruled, you know, unable to participate in that and, and they had not accepted him in the military or whatever and they had just, you know, he just lived a, a life here stateside, the guy would still be my hero because he came home, he married my grandmother, whom he was married to for over 70 years, 100% faithful to her, never even wanted somebody else, and a, a godly man that served the church and served the Lord his entire life. He was a farmer. Raised six kids, I mean, there is... I could stay here and talk about my granddaddy for the entire two hours of the show. I'm not going to do that because I know that's not why you're here, but I just wanted to say to him, happy birthday, granddaddy. I love you, and I thank you so much for everything that you've taught me and the influence that you've had over me. So I just wanted to go ahead and do that at the beginning of the show because it is a very, very special day for somebody that is not only close to me, but had a great deal of influence in my life and, and helping me become the person that I am. And so I really, really love my granddaddy. So we'll go ahead and get into some of the news of the day. Mo Brooks, who is one of the representatives for the state of Alabama in the United States House, he is the representative for the 5th District of the state of Alabama, he has actually launched into a campaign as it were, to try to get other people to not certify the Electoral College. And so, because Mo Brooks has quite a bit of doubt, he's actually given, I believe, five, and his sixth one, I imagine, is on the way tomorrow. 
He has already given five speeches from the well of the United States House of Representatives, in which all indicate his intent based on things like voter fraud, illegal immigration, uh, and trying to get illegal immigrants to vote. He's done several of these little speeches that he's done each day, which congressmen have the ability to do, uh, indicating and, and trying to drum up support for his effort to try to make sure that the Electoral College is not certified. And remember that if the Electoral College is not certified, then the constitutional process which would happen is that it goes to a vote of the House for president. But when it goes to the vote of the House for president, then it, it's not done by just raw number of representatives. It's done state by state. So whichever state has the most representative, in other words, um, if you have a state that their delegation is going to be mostly Republican, presumably that state would vote for Trump. And each state only gets one vote. It, it kind of, it's a weird thing, but it kind of defaults the House back to state representation as a means of electing the president. So, for example, if you're looking at a purple state, and, and I honestly don't know the makeup of each representative in each of the swing states, but uh, let's look at, for example, a, a purple state that would be a swing state like somewhere like Ohio, that, if I'm not mistaken right now, has more Republican representatives than they do Democrat representatives. So those representatives would get to present their vote for the state of Ohio, and that vote would be one vote for whoever they cast their vote for, in this case, probably Trump, because I, I believe that they have the majority of their, how, their national representatives in the House. I believe that they're majority Republican, and so that's how that would work. And so the Democrats currently have control of the House, but if you were to break it up in that manner then Donald Trump actually becomes the president if the Electoral College is not certified. And so from a political procedural stance, Mo Brooks is actually on the right track. If he could actually somehow pull this off, now that, that's another big question mark whether or not he can pull this off. But if Mo Brooks were to pull this off and a majority of the House would not certify the Electoral College, then yeah, this, this could be a backdoor kind of way for Trump to be the president. But remember that the Democrats actually control that. So this is a heavy lift, and I don't think that Mo Brooks is going to be able to pull it off. Here's where he is right. The Constitution does set this system up as a sort of backstop. Because a lot of people that have been critical of Mo Brooks and, and don't like the fact that he's doing this, they say he's trying to undermine the Constitution or undermine the election. Well, he believes that the election has already been undermined. And the point that Mo Brooks is trying to make is, look, the, 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 uh, the Constitution does necessarily set up this process that we can engage in if necessary. And the Constitution would not do that if it did not intend for that to happen. There is a backup plan when the Electoral College fails. And he's not wrong on that. It's the same way because we hear when we're talking about other political issues all the time. Uh, a good example would be the Senate confirming justices. For a long time, it really doesn't seem to be the case now. Really, neither side even pretends that they're going to try to give a fair hearing to either side's nominees anymore. But back in the day, there was just this sort of assumption that 
well, the president gets to nominate Supreme Court nominees, and so it's the, the just and fair thing to do to just go ahead and confirm whoever the president nominates when it comes to judicial appointments. But that's not the way the Constitution set it up. The Constitution was set up that Senate confirms that. So the president gets to nominate whoever he wants, but the Senate then considers that person and decides whether to vote them up or down. And so it, you're not doing anything incorrect by exercising the power that is granted to you by the Constitution. And so this is the same thing. What Mo Brooks is trying to say is, look, in case something happens where we doubt whether or not the vote can be relied upon, the Constitution does grant this as sort of an emergency exit kind of thing, a last resort in case something funny happens with the vote so that we can't be sure who is the correct and incorrect president. Now, whether or not you believe that the election has been hijacked, and I think that in many ways it has been, is it enough to put Trump over the top with 270 electoral votes? I haven't seen conclusive evidence of that yet, but there are definitely some weird inconsistencies that have not been hashed out and need to be hashed out, and the time is quickly running out. So, uh, in fact, you, you need to be aware of this, that really tomorrow, because today, of course, is the 8th, uh, really tomorrow is the day we need to be concerned about because the 14th is when everybody votes and the Electoral College vote is official, but the 9th is when everybody gets locked in. So in other words, the electors are, are there and they, they basically, uh, all the electors are decided on the 9th. And so uh, this is a really, really important time for us right now. We need to keep an eye on this, but I just don't see Mo Brooks being able to pull this off. And the thing that I'm I don't want to say I'm I'm rooting against this to take place with Mo Brooks. It's just understand where I'm going here and, and hear me out. As much as I do want President Trump to be president and as much as I don't want Joe Biden in office, which I, I would say I want that even more strongly than I want Trump to be president for sure. And I would also add in as much as I am extremely skeptical of some of the things that have gone on in this election, I am scared about the precedent that this sends. Now, you may wind up agreeing with me or disagreeing with me. You may say, okay, yeah, it does set up a bad precedent, but that is worth it because of X. Okay, we can have that discussion. We can have that discussion, and I'm okay with having that discussion. But hear out my concerns and, and think about this, because I think this is pretty darn serious. If Mo Brooks sets up the precedent that, because in the eyes of the Democrats... In the eyes of the American people, to a great degree, probably not all of them, but a, a significant portion of them, this is going to be viewed from an outsider looking in that doesn't know all the details and everything that's gone on and the funny business going on in, in various swing states. They're going to perceive this as just Mo Brooks and the people that side with him do not like the outcome of the election. Ergo, they're going to abuse their constitutional authority to overthrow the election because they didn't like the outcome. Now, is that a fair characterization of what's happening? No, I don't believe it is. Even if you ignore the fact, even if you ignore the fact that uh, um, that Mo Brooks is is doing this with, uh, you know, basically, if you give him the benefit of the doubt, if you give Mo Brooks the benefit of the doubt, you understand that he does believe this. You may not believe it. You may not believe that the level of voter fraud rises to the point to where this is an appropriate response to it, but Mo Brooks does. 
And so I don't think anybody could make a solid case that he's a bad faith actor, but a lot of people in the media and a lot of people in the American population as a whole, that's how they're going to see it. It may be incorrect, but regardless of whether it's correct or not, that is how it is going to be perceived. And if that becomes the precedent, the reason that that scares me and the reason that I'm worried about that is because what happens is the next time that a Republican president rightly does win the election, but it's close and, you know, that could happen. They usually are pretty close. If you have a Democrat-controlled House and they say, you know what, we're just not going to certify the Electoral College. That, that's just, no, we're, we're not going to do that. You see how they could kind of go back and justify, well, Mo Brooks did exactly the same thing. And so even though I'm pulling for Mo Brooks and I trust Mo Brooks and I really want this to shake out in the right way, and, and I do think that whether or not Donald Trump legitimately won the Electoral College or not, I think it's at the very least extremely skeptical, uh, extremely sketchy some of the things that have gone on so far. But I'm not sure that this is exactly the right response and the right way to handle it. And I wish I had a good answer and a good replacement policy for this. But I have reached out to Mo Brooks' office. I have talked to some of his staffers and I'm in communication with them now and I'm hoping that he can come on because... You know, Mo Brooks has just been too good a congressman for me to assume that he's, uh, I don't even want to say go off the deep end because I don't think that's how I'm characterizing it, but uh, he's thought this through. That's how I'll say it. He has thought this through. He has a good reason for doing this, and so I, I kind of want to pick his brain, and so I've invited him on the program. Hopefully, we will get an answer from him not too long from now, but the bottom line here is this is why it's so important. This is why it's so important to have systems in place where we can trust the vote the first time anyway. And I know that it's a little too late now to be talking about that. I know that we have passed the Rubicon in many ways. I'm just saying that this is the reason, this is a perfect example of why it is so important to have a trustworthy system in place beforehand. Because what has happened here is a lot of these cases of voter fraud are going to be thrown out. Are they going to be thrown out because they're illegitimate in the sense that the Democrats are definitely up to some underhanded stuff? Not necessarily. But the reason that they're not going to be thrown out, in my opinion, that these election results are going to stand is because the Democrats have so poisoned the water. In other words, they have institutionalized cheating as a part of the system as opposed to an anomaly that exists outside of it. They have been setting the rule book to favor them for a while now. Pennsylvania is the, I mean, the best case scenario, uh, the, the best case study for them when it comes to that. How they have just through judicial fiat and also through some of the rules and regulations they put in place months beforehand, that they have made it to where cheating is actually a part of the system. And so as horrible as that would be, when a judge looks at that and sees, hmm, well, that looks bad, but technically it doesn't break the rules, which, by the way, as hard as that is to hear, that's what a good judge does. Whether or not he thinks that it's fair or right or good, if the law says this, and the case that's presented before him would say that that is okay according to the law, a good judge is going to be one that says, 
yep, that's what the law says. I may not like it, may not agree with it, doesn't matter. That's what the law says. And so this is where we're running into some of these problems, and I, I do hate that the Supreme Court hasn't looked at, or uh, actually, this is breaking news just, I think, a couple of hours ago, that the Supreme Court said that they are not going to hear the case for Pennsylvania, and I am very disappointed in that, but uh, this is part of the problem and the wall that we're running up against, and this is why it's so important to make sure that we have a good system in place months out beforehand, before an election starts. When it's not an election year, to focus on that then, because not doing that has led us to the system that where we are now, essentially. So that being said, uh, there is a, another issue going on here in the state of Alabama it has to do with the toll bridge. You may remember that the there was this big kerfuffle with the uh, I-10 bridge down in Mobile, and they were going to build a new bridge, and then uh, plans of it got scrapped when they released, oh, by the way, it's going to just you know be six bucks every time you cross it. And so that's kind of what caused all of the commotion, and Jim Ziegler, who is the state auditor for the state of Alabama, decided that he, too, was going to weigh in on this. So you can see this quote from Jim Ziegler, and he says, you know, in Birmingham, they just built a new I-59, I-20, I-65 interchange, costing about $800 million with no tolls, Ziegler, uh, Ziegler added. Uh, they can build the I-10 bridge with no tolls, and we're sticking to that. Now, on its surface, this doesn't seem like a bad point. But the truth is, this is a bad point for a couple of reasons, and I, I, I really love Jim Ziegler, and I know John from Millbrook, if he's watching right now, is going to be mad at me for saying anything slightly negative about Jim Ziegler. The man loves him some Jim Ziegler. But anyway, uh, Jim Ziegler, you know, normally I, I have a great deal of respect for Jim Ziegler, but at the same time, there's two reasons this is actually a very, very bad argument. First of all, the main reason is because he's fussing about the cost, and 100% agree with his stance on that and where he's coming from. The, the estimates on this bridge are ridiculously expensive. But the reason for that, the reason that it's so much more ridiculously expensive than the $800 million interchange that he's talking about is because it had to comply with EPA regulations that were holdover from the Obama administration that said that each bridge, each new piece of infrastructure that's going to be over water like that, it has to be built to withstand the new water levels over the next hundred years. Now, this is based on garbage climate science that says that the ocean levels are going to be rising, you know, so however many hundred feet in the air afterward. There's two reasons why that's incredibly stupid. I've already done a video on it, so I'm just going to kind of give you the brief version here. Uh, first of all, the bridge connects two pieces of road that, you know, are lower than the bridge significantly lower because they're trying to elevate this bridge to ridiculous levels so that in a hundred years it'll still be sticking above where this client uh, the climate scientists think the bridge and the water level is going to be there's no way they could possibly know that uh, they've been wrong on basically every prediction you remember that in an inconvenient truth back in 2006 the al gore movie that they said that miami was going to be completely underwater and that you wouldn't, the, the entire city of Miami wouldn't exist today because of how rapidly the water level was going to rise. Here we are in 2020, 14 years later, 
And uh, yeah, Miami's still there. I don't know if Al Gore knows that or not. Maybe he thinks that the Marlins have just been playing on a stage and the whole thing was a, a hoax. Uh, but no, Miami not underwater. In fact, Miami's really pretty much the same as it's always been, and so are our water levels to a great degree. And uh, when it comes to this bridge, I just don't believe that in a hundred years we're going to have all this insane infrastructure. And also, in a hundred years, wouldn't pretty much any bridge that we build be obsolete in a century anyway? Like, take the climate junk out of it, why would we make a bridge that is specifically made to last for a hundred years when, you know, 40, 50 years from now, we'll probably need another bridge? And so it really is absurd on a number of levels, but this is the reality that we find ourselves in. And because of that, we complied with all these absurd regulations, and that's why the price tag was so ridiculously high. And presumably, the roads that it connects, because this bridge is so insanely high, if the water levels really did rise the level that they are predicting, wouldn't those roads be underwater? So you would have a bridge over water, but none of the roads connected to it would be accessible. Again, none of it makes any sense. This is just something that they are putting out there, and the reason that it was so expensive, I, I think that the most recent estimate, estimates that came out of the governor's office were like 40% of the cost of this bridge were due to the EPA regulations that suggested this. So that's part of the reason that this is a bad argument, and it's not Jim Ziegler's fault. It's just he's thinking like a rational human being, and these regulations that are causing the price of the bridge to skyrocket, those are the thoughts of irrational human beings. The second one, which is a little bit more critical on Ziegler himself, it's not, just, uh, an, it's not just an argument of ignorance here. An interchange, that's a lot different than a toll bridge. That's a lot different than a bridge in general. An interchange does not lend itself to tolls. So the interstate interchange is just a bad analogy to a bridge. Now, if he compared it to a different bridge that the Alabama Department of Transportation had overseen the construction of, okay, might be a good point. But an interchange, can you imagine if they tried to put tolls on an interchange, like people zipping around and trying to get in other lanes and they're like, oh, hang on, we've got to charge you for this. And also, the whole point of a bridge, and specifically this bridge, is you can get everywhere that you need to go without using the bridge. The bridge would just make it easier and faster. And so the interchange is now a necessity. If you want to get from road A to road B, there's not a route around it. You're not just cut, you're not just shaving time off of your trip. You have to get on this interchange to get to the other road. It's the only option here. There's not really a way to go around it. There's not really a way or a good place to take up tolls. And so it's a really bad analogy. You got to compare apples to apples here. And Jim Ziegler just kind of falls short on that, so it's not a good comparison, but ultimately, one of the things that I find really interesting is, again, and I'm a big fan of Jim Ziegler, but this is one area where I actually find myself disagreeing with him. You see, he seems to believe, and, and I think that, I understand where he's coming from on this, that we should be working towards a goal of having a bridge with no toll. I actually don't agree with that. Because it bothers me that the state is trying to build this bridge that will be primarily used by residents 
of Mobile and the surrounding area, despite the fact that the vast majority of the people in the state will either never use this bridge or incredibly seldomly use this bridge. See, I've always been a believer in, and this is part comes from my ideas about limited government, I believe that local government should have the most autonomy as humanly possible, but I also believe that coupled with that is the responsibility for them to pay for their own stuff. If they're going to build a piece of infrastructure or a park or whatever else it is they decide they want to build, that's fine with me. I think that they should have the maximum amount of liberty to do whatever they want to when it comes to those things, but I also think they ought to bear the cost as well. It makes no sense for people in Ozark and Op and Auburn and Tuscaloosa and Montgomery and Birmingham and Huntsville, it makes no sense to have all of those people pitching in on a bridge they may not ever even see. The thing that I do like about the tolls is that they would mostly affect the people that are actually using the bridge. Now, do I think it should be $6 each trip? That seems a little steep. And I certainly think that we could build this thing and cut the cost if we could figure out a way to get rid of these ridiculous EPA regulations. Frankly, my stance on that would be, say, screw the EPA regulations, we're just going to build it ourselves, and if the EPA wants to come down and try to enforce it, then more power to them. I really don't think that the EPA is going to be able to take us out. They're not, you know, uh, the, they're not the United States Army. So <laughs> I would be fine with just straight up ignoring the regulations and start construction regardless and dare the EPA to try to stop me. But anyway, that being said, I, I think that you could make it for less money, and I do applaud Auditor Ziegler's efforts to keep the cost down. That is something that he and I are 100% on the same page on. But as far as like who should be bearing the brunt of this financial burden, I do think it's the people that are going to be using the bridge themselves. And you know what? Sometimes I go down to South Alabama. I might wind up using this bridge at some point, and I will happily pay the toll that one time if it means I don't have to pay the toll, you know, many, many times over as a part of my taxes, even though I might only use the bridge a couple times a year at the absolute most. I think the guy that's going to be on it every single day commuting, he ought to be the one paying for the bridge. And you know what? If they find that there's a whole lot of people that don't want to use the bridge and they'd rather just skirt around it and, and go the other way that they normally did and let it take a little more time, that's fine. And if they think that everybody's going to do that, then they need to start asking themselves the questions, mm, why are we building the bridge then? If people aren't willing to pay for the new bridge, if people aren't willing to shell out the money from their own pocket for the bridge to be constructed, then maybe we don't need the bridge. That would be my stance on it, and that's part of the reason I like this idea of local accountability. Because people tend to spend other people's money with much more liberty than they do their own. I mean, if I say uh, I'm paying for lunch, then people are going to, I mean, unless they're like good friends and just super considerate or something like that. But as a general rule, if I say that to somebody and they're like, you know what, I'm paying for lunch, get whatever you want you know, you might have that extra order of fries or you might might splurge a little bit and get a Coke instead of a water or something like that. People tend to be less cautious with money that they did not labor for and did not earn. I mean, a better example actually is lunch that you get when you're buying and, and it's on an expense from work versus your own money. 
I mean, people do tend to spend other people's money more. That's just how the world works. And so because of that, if they know that the, the cost of this bridge is going to be spread all across the, straight, uh, the state and each taxpayer in Alabama is going to be paying for it and they know that they're not going to have to pay so much for it, they might be all for the new bridge. And then if they realize, oh, I'm going to have to pay for it, maybe not so much. Or maybe when they do that, they're like, well, I'd be willing to pay for it, but it's gotta, we got to drive the price down a little bit. See, this is the reason that local control is so important because it maximizes accountability that people there, if they're going to be the ones paying for it, they want to make sure they're getting a good deal. They want to make sure that they are getting worth, basically the bang for their buck. But it also, because of that, winds up cutting costs and it makes fraud significantly more difficult. If you're funneling funds through a office in Montgomery versus something locally like that, that's just, it's easier to defraud people that way. Now, that being said, because I do think that a toll would actually be the preferable way to pay for this bridge, I do think that the toll should be reasonable, and I think the toll should be gotten rid of the second that the bridge is paid off. So I'm fine with them enacting a toll, but the second that they have actually accumulated enough money to pay for the bridge, then the toll needs to go away. Tear down the toll booths, no more. I'm fine with that. Would be 100% all right with that. So if they wind up doing that, then I think that is the best way to keep everybody accountable. But projects really ought to be paid for, and this is just generally true. It makes no sense for you and me and other residents of citizens of the state of Alabama to be paying for the Amtrak that runs from D.C. to New York right now. And as federal taxpayers, we are supplementing the tickets for people getting on the train in New York City to go down to D.C. and vice versa. Their tickets are cheaper because we're helping pay for it. That makes no sense. There's a very good chance I will never at any point in my life ever even see the Amtrak train that runs that line, much less ride it, yet somehow it makes sense to the government bureaucrats that my money is helping pay for it? No. And this is exactly the same thing on a smaller scale, granted, but it's the same thing. The people that are going to be benefiting from this project ought to be the ones that are paying the bill. That's just how I see it. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. We have a really, really good segment on the other side of this. Matt Clark from the Foundation of Moral Law been on the show many times. He actually stopped by to talk about how the city of New York and the state of New York as a whole is handling some of these religious liberty claims because you may have heard the Supreme Court ruled on how they are dealing with the coronavirus and churches and shutting them down. And the Supreme Court came back and slapped them around a little bit and said, oh, no, you don't. You can't have these extra restrictions on the Supreme Court. So we have that discussion, and that is coming up on the other side of this break when we come back. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. While we're taking a break from the show, I'm going to be taking a break too. A little snack break from insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies.com. Now, they do have physical stores. They're not just an online company. So if you do happen to be in Mobile or Birmingham or Auburn or Tuscaloosa, be sure to stop by one of their stores. I'm sure they'll be glad to see you, give you a fresh-baked cookie right then and there. But if you're like me and don't live in any of those locations... You do have to order online, and they will send you this fantastic box, a box just like this from insomniacookies.com. 
And what you'll do is you'll get that, you'll pull it out, and you can eat the cookie normally. Or you can do what I do and what Insomnia Cookies actually recommends, which is pop it in the microwave for a few minutes and it comes out and it tastes like a fresh baked cookie. So today we're going to be reviewing one that I'm pretty stoked about, the peanut butter chip. So not chocolate chip, peanut butter chip. And the thing is, I love peanut butter. I will eat almost anything with peanut butter. I, I lived off of peanut butter in college. It, were it not for the Peter Pan Company, I probably would have died. I would not have survived college had that taken place. And so I absolutely love peanut butter. So far, my favorite cookie from insomniacookies.com has been their peanut butter cup. And so I assume that the peanut butter chip is, is slightly different than that. And I'm just really excited to test this one out. I really like this because it is a peanut butter cookie, but it's not your standard peanut butter cookie. You, you know the standard peanut butter cookies where the, the peanut butter is just mixed into the cookie dough, which is still good. Don't get me wrong. I, I still very much enjoy those. But this is a little different than that. I, I don't know if they've actually worked peanut butter into the cookie dough on this one or it's just standard cookie dough. But I actually like this better because you can taste the peanut butter a little bit more. It's a little less consistent, so if you like consistency, this, this may not be for you. You'd probably prefer the traditional peanut butter cookie. But I actually really prefer this version. I think that the peanut butter chips make the, the peanut butter flavor pop a little more, and you can taste the sort of peanut butter consistency in the cookie itself. It sort of mixes it up a little bit. It's kind of the difference between just having a chocolate cookie and having a chocolate chip cookie. This is the peanut butter chip cookie, so that makes sense. I got a really big bite full of peanut butter chips in that one. This is a really good cookie. This is one of the best ones that I've had so far. Not as good as the peanut butter cup one. But if you're a peanut butter fiend like I am, you just can't get enough peanut butter, I would highly, highly recommend the peanut butter chip. This is a fantastic cookie. One of the best ones that I've tried so far, and that is high praise because insomniacookies.com has some really good cookies. So this being one of the better ones... That is, is very high praise for me. Check them out at insomniacookies.com if you want to get the peanut butter chip cookie. That's insomniacookies.com. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and newsradio1440.com. And welcome back, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us here on Tactics. We appreciate you watching, however you're watching. And if you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, be sure to give us a like and subscribe because that is how we beat the algorithm, which, as always, is working against us. So we appreciate your support. My next guest is somebody who's been on the show very often. He tends to come here whenever we have anything dealing with constitutional law or religious liberty, or in this case, both. So we're going to go ahead without further ado and go to Matt Clark from the Foundation for Moral Law. Thanks for being with us, Matt. We appreciate you being on the program this evening. Well, thank you, Caleb. It's, uh, it's always an honor to be asked to come on the show with you and always have a good time talking about uh, stuff with you. So thanks for the invite. Yeah, well, I, uh, I invite you as often as I can because I feel like the audience gets tired of hearing me talk about it. So. Well, they get uh, <laughs> tired of hearing me talk too, so... <laughs> so, uh, this particular case that I've asked you to come into, for those of you who, who may not know, uh, it deals specifically with Andrew Cuomo and some of his restrictions that he's placed, and a, a Catholic diocese, if I'm not mistaken, is the one that filed this suit to try to say, well, you can't discriminate against churches and, and restrict them in this way when it came to the, the COVID-related restrictions. So, if you could just give us some background and context on that case. 
Sure. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. This case was brought to the Supreme Court from uh, the Roman Catholic Diocese in Brooklyn, New York. And it involved uh, a question that hopefully, if we've been paying attention, has started to cross a lot of our minds right now. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, we all, we all acknowledge that COVID is a very real problem. And, um, but, we're, you know, we have to start asking questions about, you know, how far is too far with the government, you know, issuing restrictions as they try to fight this. Mm -hmm. um, and in this case, in, in my opinion, this was one of the most egregious religious liberty violations as the states try to figure out how to deal mm -hmm. with COVID. Uh, there has been a, a wide range of how states have chosen to um, deal with uh, the, the coronavirus and especially as it relates to churches. But yeah, Andrew Cuomo uh, in, in New York, so his restrictions are some of the worst. Um, like a lot of other governors, he is making this stuff up as he goes along. Uh, so we don't have a legislature getting together to even debate how to do this. It's one man calling the shots. Um, but right. And, and that's been one of my big criticisms, not only of the state of New York, but most of the states, including Alabama. Some yes. of the things that Governor Ivey's done, even the things that I agree with, I'm like, yeah, but she doesn't have the power to do that. And even if she did, I'd feel a lot more comfortable if the legislature was actually in on this at some level. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, governors have executive power, and, and I think there is a case to be made that, you know, when emergencies hit initially, maybe the governors have some inherent power to be able to take immediate action to deal with an emergency, but sure. that can't go on for too long because otherwise you, you start crossing the line real fast into the governor making law, and that's mm -hmm. legislative and executive power combined, and that's just tyrannical. That's why we separate powers and why we're not okay with this. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's that, that's been a big problem in uh, New York, especially uh, Governor Cuomo has been very heavy handed. And by the time this came up to um, the Supreme Court uh, there, Cuomo had classified uh, different areas within the state and, and New York City in particular, uh, kind of according to a color coding system. If you found yourself in a red zone, then unless you were an essential business, you could have. Uh, no more than 10 people uh, in a place at one time. And th this is specifically talking about houses of worship, churches and synagogues and the right. like. Um, and, and, and personally, Matt, I really appreciate you explaining what to do once you're in a red zone because as an Auburn fan, you know, I'm not used to that. So, <laughs> Same here. Yeah. Uh, Lord have uh, Lord have mercy on Auburn. I'm still, yeah. <laughs> War Eagle anyway, though. Yeah, War Eagle. <laughs> I was wearing an Auburn mask at work today, and, and one of my coworkers said, oh, come on, you know, th th this has got to be a joke, right? I'm like, no, this is called loyalty. I'm still sticking <laughs> with him even when they get whooped. Um, right, but but yeah, in this in this red zone, and he's he's offered these restrictions, and I believe the, the particular zone that was in question was one that was in an orange zone at the time, I think. There were a couple, as, as I remember it, because yeah, it mm -hmm. dealt with uh, Brooklyn. And there was a companion case brought by a Jewish synagogue that uh, alleged pretty much the same claims. Right. And so some of these places were in red zones. Others were orange. Orange isn't much better. You can have uh, up to 25, but then that's it. Um, but the problem was, in, in both of these cases, whether you're in red or orange, the governor made a long list of exceptions for businesses that he considered essential. Mm -hmm. And there were... A lot of secular businesses that could stay open, ranging from grocery stores down to laundromats um, and, and even liquor stores. Um, and, you know, some of the governors have been reasoning we're going to have a major problem if uh, the alcoholics can't get their alcohol. You know, and I mean, on, on the one hand, okay, I, I, I get there may be something to that, especially if you're d dealing with domestic violence situation. But you know, something is very wrong when the governor says, "All right, liquor is essential, but church is not." The, yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, 
that that, yeah. that should be a big warning sign that maybe we've skedaddled off the right point at that time. I mean, that that was one of the big issues that was brought up by Gorsuch mm -hmm. uh, in his consenting opinion or consenting. <laughs> <laughs> concurring opinion. Concurring, yes. Uh, yeah, done too much Me Too stories lately, I guess. Uh, but in his concurring opinion, one of the things that, that Gorsuch brings up, which I mean made sense, is that it's not even necessarily that these restrictions on their face by themselves are unconstitutional or an overreach, even though I think you could certainly make the argument that they were. Yeah. He was saying, but you certainly can't put more restriction on the churches than you are a bike shop or a liquor store or a gym. Like, that's that's not something you can do. Yeah, bingo. I, I was a big fan of Gorsuch's concurrence. He, he was not only saying the right things, but he was absolutely on fire and mm -hmm. pulling no punches as, uh, as he wrote. So I thought he did a, a great job with that. Um, and, and I think my favorite thing was that he added just a little bit of sass, yes. and it, it was Scalia-esque. <laughs> and as yes. much as I love Clarence Thomas, not mm. a lot of sass in his opinion. So it was nice to have, the, in the absence of Scalia, have Gorsuch sort of fill that role. Oh, yeah, I, I agree completely. I mean, t you know, I think Thomas is uh, the greatest justice we've had on the Supreme Court in well over 100 years. But in terms Agreed. of, yeah, the writing flair, yeah, that, that used to be Scalia's thing and now appears to be Gorsuch's uh, mm. thing, too. So his opinions are, are definitely entertaining to read um, but yeah like you you know uh, the, the court as a whole there, there were five justices and, and this goes to show the difference that Justice Barrett made um, because there were similar challenges that came up to the Supreme Court before Barrett was appointed mm -hmm. and um, the court uh, denied the application for uh, immediate relief five to four both times with uh, Chief Justice Roberts joining the liberals um, but you had Thomas and Gorsuch and Alito and Kavanaugh who all would have stepped in and stuck up for the churches. Well, so that, that block of four plus Barrett voted to um, stand up for the churches and, and give them the relief that they were asking for. Right. So um, procedurally, this, this, this was not the way the court typically does things. They usually get a cert petition, they grant it, uh, they hear oral argument on both sides of the case, and then they, they make a final binding decision. Um, this was a request for an injunction while the petition was pending. So what that means is they're asking the court to step in and say, okay, as we're figuring out what to do, you have to hold off. You can't keep beating these churches up, all right? So that it's, it's a temporary order, but it's a good sign because for the court to give that, they have to conclude that you're likely to succeed on your claim. So uh, for right now, that is a very good sign for churches across America because it, you, what it signals is that we have five justices that are not going to be turning a blind eye to churches if, uh, if the government's either targeting them or, or treating them unequally with secular businesses, even in the midst of a pandemic. So mm -hmm. um, that, was, that, that was good. Uh, and and I really decision. think one of the important things about this opinion is that it, it helped in a different way, too, that I think a lot of people may not have thought about, because taking the, the judicial... I guess, rigmarole out of it, and just looking at it from a human nature standpoint, for several months on end now, we have seen governors that have been acting like many dictators. Mm -hmm. And that's largely because so far nobody has stopped them or said them that they can't do something. And so if nothing else, even if you didn't necessarily agree with the opinion, which of course I did, but even if you didn't necessarily agree with the opinion, I think that most people would agree that it is at least a good thing for the governor to be reminded okay, there are some limitations to what I can do. Just because there's a virus doesn't mean I suddenly have unlimited power. And so that reminder 
could have sent out a signal to other governors, especially as several of them are considering going back into some sort of lockdown, Mm -hmm. that maybe I should be a little bit more cautious about throwing restrictions on churches. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, I mean, you know, I I think you and I would both agree that the, one of the basic problems with human nature is we're not naturally good people. So if you right. send a message to anybody who has all power in his hands that he can get away with whatever he wants, he's going to abuse that before too long. Mm-hmm. And that has happened all across the country. Definitely happening in New York. You know, very bad situation there. But um, but you're right. It, it, it is uh, a win for, for for liberty across the board and for the rule of law for a court to finally step in and say, look, you, just because there's a pandemic doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. You know, we're still a constitutional republic and not a dictatorship, even in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah, I think a great example of that is a story that I actually covered on my, my previous episode that I think is just a, it, it's such a microcosm of where we are as a country right now and how we value religion versus other secular things. A California church actually reclassified itself as a strip club. Yeah. <laughs> so I saw that. They're like, we we got to start calling ourselves a strip club because if we that way we'll get more rights and more liberty and have more freedom to worship if we do that. Which I mean, it means that the strip clubs are being treated better by the government than the churches. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I can't remember if this is the same case or not, but I think in San Diego. There was a uh, a court case where uh, there, there was a strip club that brought a challenge to some right. Of these that, that, rules that's they why they did the redesignation okay. as as a result of that case. Okay, yeah, you you know there's something very wrong where you, mm-hmm. you know in the pandemic the strip clubs can meet but the churches can't. Um, I, I I loved uh, in John MacArthur's case. I, I loved how he opened the first sermon. After oh yeah, I love defying, that clip. Yeah, welcome to the Grace Community Church peaceful protest. That's <laughs> perfect. Not mostly peaceful, just peaceful. Yep. Yep. But, you know, Cuomo argued, and and this was sort of his rebuttal and and something he made not just afterward, but during the case itself, he said, well, this case should be dropped because these restrictions aren't even on the churches anymore. We've actually scaled back the restrictions. And so because of that, this case is a, a moot point. Do you, do you agree with that? And if not, why? No, not at all. And, and so um, we're, you know, my firm is actually handling, um, you know, two cases right now where we're challenging COVID mm. restrictions. And one of them is sticking up for a uh, a church that, you know, has some problems with some of the religious liberty restrictions. And, and this, right. in, in not only our cases, but um, just about every case that I've seen out there, this has been the government's go-to defense. And, and I can't really blame the government for arguing that because, frankly, if I was working in a, a attorney general's office, that would probably be the first point that I raise. Right. Um, the, the general rule is that um, for courts to make a, a decision and to issue an order, there has to be a live controversy. Mm-hmm. So meaning right, there, there's actually a, a problem that is currently going on between two parties, and then the court has to be able to issue a ruling that's probably going to be able to resolve it. Right. It's an issue of standing. Bingo. Standing. Yep. So so the concept of mootness is is related very, very closely to standing. Uh, you know, the two kind of go to um, whether a court has Article Three powers to hear actual cases or controversies. The Constitution doesn't give it the ability to um, just render advisory opinions, but right. you know, it makes them solve real problems. So at the last minute, Cuomo backed out and lifted, you know, um, lifted his restrictions. And he said, all right, so it's moot. The problem is, um, 
you know, th this is not the core system's first time around the block. We have been seeing actions like this for well over a hundred years. And because of that, the courts have recognized an exception to the mootness doctrine, saying that if a matter is capable of repetition but evading review, then the court can go ahead and solve it. And, you know, to, to prove that, um, mm -hmm. you have to prove that uh, th that there's a very substantial likelihood that these people are going to find themselves in the exact same situation again. Um, right, and that's the thing that's so frustrating about mm -hmm. that defense is he's like, well, it's a moot point because they're not under this anymore. It's like, yeah, but you didn't even remove the law. The law's still there. They could presumably go back into an orange or a red status and then you would have it all over again. I could kind of see his point if the law was off the books, but it's mm -hmm. not. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and to be... Um, if if you let people like Cuomo get away with this, mm. then it really opens the door to even more shenanigans that you saw there. Um, in in the case that my firm is handling out of Louisiana, I, I compiled in our latest filing. I compiled the list of every order that our our clients have been subject to from when this broke out in March up until now, and it was something like about twenty something orders. And um, if if you want to be technical about it, and if you want to change. How, you know, uh, if you want to count how the orders change um, ever so slightly, you know, it, it, our, our clients have been subject to about 20 different orders. And mm -hmm. so we told the court, like, all right, based on my math, if you divide that up, the, uh, the, the average length of one of these orders is about 33 days. So if you're going to challenge it, you're going to stick up for your constitutional rights. You can't file a complaint and let the judicial process play out because it's going to be over really, really quick. If you have to hit the reset button every time the order changes, you're never going to get a final decision at all. Mm. So that's why sometimes you have to hold the government's feet to the fire. Um, and there are some Supreme Court decisions saying that the government's voluntary uh, relinquishment of its wrongful conduct doesn't make a case moot, you know, because mm. sometimes you can sue the government and they realize, uh oh, we stepped in it. We're going to step back out. But then when the court's not looking, we're going to step right back in again. And I think that's, you know, right. that was a big complaint to what Cuomo was doing. Well, and that, that is the issue uh, with what Cuomo was doing exactly is because it seemed as though the, because right after this thing was filed is when he started changing the, the parameters of what qualifies as an orange zone or a red zone. And yes. so it seems as though that was a direct reaction to, and he was specifically trying to do that to make the, the argument, well, you can't change your policy to make the argument after the fact mm -hmm. that the previous uh, regulation that was in place was legally acceptable. Well, that, that's not how this works. Yep. Um, and so, I mean, it would be it would be almost like uh, in a football game if you get an offsides penalty called on you, you're like, well, we're not offsides now. <laughs> Well, well, yeah, but you were when we threw the flag. <laughs> That's yes. the problem. <laughs> that is an excellent analogy. As always, you're, you're able to come up with fantastic analogies. Well, thank to you. Explain complicated legal stuff. So that was good. I appreciate that. So anyway, one other thing that I wanted to ask you, Matt, is could the government put some restrictions on a church? Because we've been very specific with this particular law in this particular case. I kind of want to go to to give the audience kind of a, a broader idea of what could happen and what would be acceptable. You know, we are in an unprecedented, at least for the last hundred years, pandemic. There, I mean, there are real concerns, mm -hmm. and and you and I have personally talked about that those kind of concerns before. So, in an emergency situation like this, and if it was applied evenly, in other words, they're not specifically targeting churches, which seems to be what Cuomo was doing. What restrictions could be placed on churches and gatherings? So that is an excellent question. Um, 
in my capacity as a attorney for the Foundation for Moral Law, um, you know, we we are taking the position that this is one of the few things that it, the First Amendment places absolutely off limits to the government. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if, if you try to go back and look at an originalist analysis, um, if you're trying to figure out what the founders would have done uh, during a pandemic, you're going to have a hard time finding, uh, you know, information. I mean, we haven't really been able to find, you know, much on that at all. Um, we go back and you look at the kind of things that they were fighting over back then. Um, they were really trying to avoid punishing people for going to church or the government dictating you can only go to certain churches but not others. And, and even up until the present age, really up until COVID hit, um, even, even among liberals, it, it was always presumed that no matter how far the free exercise clause extends in its application, um, the right to believe is absolute. Mm -hmm. And pretty much what you do in traditional church services, that's probably off limit too. Um, but the debate beyond that really came down to things like, okay, you know, can the Christian cake baker decline to um, turn down uh, making a custom cake on same-sex weddings? Right. But, but for a very long time, it was presupposed that uh, the right to believe and the right to hold church services were absolutely off limits. Um, the court did not address that question in its uh, decision in um, of the, the the Roman Catholic diocese from last week, but they have they have left it open. What the court has recognized is that at a minimum, and those are the key words right there, at a minimum, um, the government can't treat churches worse than they treat you know secular counterparts. Right. Um, but anyway, we've you know in the litigation that we're pursuing, um, we have zeroed in on a few things from. Uh, from, from the founding era that we think are are, are applicable. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so number one, James Madison. When you look at his view, and he he was the principal architect of the First Amendment. Right. He really viewed religious liberty as a jurisdictional matter. Um, mm -hmm. he, he said that religion or the duty that we owe to our Creator in the manner of discharging it uh, can be exercised only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. It is therefore mm -hmm. the duty uh, of every man to render the homage to his Creator that he deems acceptable, and not by you know how how another decides it. So I started paraphrasing there at the end, but that's memorial and remonstrance if you want to look it up. But as he goes on, he packs it out, and he really takes a social compact theory to its logical conclusion, saying, all right, if God gave rights to man, and then man formed government, then how can government ever take away what belongs to God? It doesn't make any sense under this way of looking at it. Right, which is basically so, the premise of Locke, which is one of the big uh, progenitors of basically the entire philosophy that our, our nation and our laws were founded on. Bingo. Bingo. So yeah, you've, you've got some stuff from Madison there. Thomas Jefferson said some similar things in his Virginia statute on religious mm -hmm. liberty. He thought that it was time for the government to step in when um, actions that are done in the name of religious exercise uh, become overt acts against um, you know, the, the, the public peace or good order. So I, I guess if you have, for instance, um, let's take radical Islam, for example. Okay, yeah. You're getting together and you're going on jihad and going after everybody and trying to kill people, well, all right, that is definitely time for the government to step in and say, you can believe whatever you want, but you can't go around killing people. That's done. Um, or if you were talking about uh, something that would be a disruption to the peace, even if they aren't technically going out and killing people, just like inciting a rebellion or something like yes. that, that would be something that even if no one dies, that would still be something that's a problem because that's illegal in another capacity. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, and the, it, so in addition to what some of the founders have said, 
Um, there's been, there have been some statements in some key Supreme Court opinions that we're also bringing up that we think work in our favor here. Mm -hmm. um, Employment Division versus Smith and Iverson versus Board of Education, those are cornerstone religious liberty cases, and a lot of religious conservatives don't like them because they were kind of bad decisions. But even as bad as they were, both had points where they recognized saying, regardless of what you can and can't do, you can't stop people from going to church. Um, Iverson, 1947 decision. This is the very first time that the Supreme Court invoked uh, Jefferson's wall of separation of church and state and sadly mm -hmm. took it out of context. And that's that's part of the reason why nowadays you see things like if you set up a Ten Commandments display at the county courthouse, you know, the ACLU comes after you. Um, however, for all its flaws, uh, the, the court at the beginning of the opinion uh, said, look, there, there's some pretty clear do's and don'ts here. And the Establishment Clause, one of, one of the things it's pretty clear on is that the government cannot force people to go to church or force them to stay away from it. So we zeroed in on that and said, right. that's what's going on here. Um, yeah, and, and that was kind of one of the points that I made, which is we have a First Amendment, and it clearly has freedom of religion in there. If that's not to protect you from a government saying you're not allowed to worship the way you want to, I don't know why we have it. Like, that's yeah. basically as far as it goes. Yeah. I mean, that would be almost like the equivalent of, in a first speech question, being like, but you're not allowed to say anything that we don't approve of. Like, that. that's yes. as far as it goes. There's no further to go from that. And Exactly. And, and that's really where the, this issue comes in. And especially with, with Cuomo specifically, I mean, it seems as though, because I, I know you may not be aware of this. I know it's kind of a, a secret, but... There are actually mosques in New York. I know. How about that? <laughs> it's, it, they exist. I know. Yes. It's weird. People don't know this, but it, it's true. And uh, it seems like any time there is a Orthodox Jewish gathering or a gathering of Christians, Cuomo is all over that, and we have yet to hear of a case of them shutting down a mosque. Yeah, you know that, that, that's a good that's a good point, and, and that's something you know about the left that just makes me scratch my head. I, I think um, you probably saw this too, but if, if we back up five years and we go back to um, some of the lawsuits when they first started arising, where uh, the left was coming after Christian bakers who didn't want to bake the cake for same-sex weddings. Right. Stephen Crowder, who I, I think is just wonderful, he went undercover. I love this story. Yeah, he went undercover into Dearborn, Michigan, which has a very high Muslim population. He he, he, he pretended to be a gay man who was asking them to bake a, a gay wedding cake. He comes up to this Muslim cake baker looking very effeminate. It's like, I want you to bake me a cake that says Adam and Steve forever. <laughs> right. And the guy's like, no, I'm not doing that. And he caught about five of them on camera. And, and then, you know, when he was done with that, he said, now, listen, I completely support the right of these Muslim cake bakers to not do this. But my whole sure. point is, where the heck is the outcry from the left? Because it's the exact same thing, except when the Muslims do it, you want to give them a pass. When the Christians do it, you want to crack down on them. And, and Cuomo's doing the same things in New York City. He's cracking down on Christians and Jews, but giving Muslims a pass to do whatever they want. Right. And, and not just Muslims, because, of course, that's more of one that we, it's sort of a... It's sort of an argument from a lack of data, which I typically don't like to make, but it is kind of bizarre that in all yes. this time, there's not a single mosque in New York that's ever gathered anywhere. Like, that seems unlikely to me. Yeah. But on top of that, it's not even just those cases. We know for a fact that people like Cuomo and de Blasio and other big-name elected Democrat officials have actually gathered in giant gatherings for things like Black Lives Matter, yes. and it's okay when they do it. It's just not okay for you to get together with 11 people and take the Lord's Supper. That's that's way too dangerous. <laughs> uh, th th that is well said, Caleb. I agree completely. Um, in our in our case that we're handling out of Louisiana, so our, our client is a uh, the pastor of a Pentecostal church, and um, he you know he holds 
the belief that verses like Hebrews 10, 25 are to be taken uh, absolutely literally, you know, you so, you know, not forsaking the assembly of the brethren means, all right, you got to show up in church in person. And so that that's, you know, that, that's your angle that they've been fighting with. Um, right, so which, this, by the way, I just want to interject here really quick before you finish your point. Um, I don't necessarily see it that way. I see the gathering as something that doesn't have to be in person per se. Uh, spiritual gathering is, is enough for me, but mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. He believes it. He has the right to do it. Bingo. You know, for what it's worth, uh, you know, I, I, I see it, you know, the same way. But when it comes to the First Amendment, the law really doesn't care one way or another which point is theologically correct. Right. What it, it tries to do is it, and it tries to, yeah, it tries to maximize individual liberty. And, and, and this is one area where I think um, even as badly as the court has the Supreme Court has messed up the free exercise clause. This is one thing where it's gotten it right, has been in cases where there have been, you know, um, beliefs that have come up that, you know, may be considered unorthodox, even within a particular person's denomination. The court has done a pretty good job of holding the line and saying, mm -hmm. um, we don't really care. What we care about is that particular person believes is what God requires of them. So because of that, the free exercise clause applies, and we're going to be very, very careful with how he, tre he treads on this. We're, we're not going to say things like, that's not what the Bible says, or this isn't even what your denomination thinks. Uh, th th there is a line from a past Supreme Court case saying, the law knows no heresy. And I think on that regard, it's 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 absolutely right, you know? Um, yeah, there, there was a story just recently about a church having a ceremony, like a celebration ceremony for a trans person, mm -hmm. uh, which I think yeah. is... A, an extremely high form of blasphemy, and every single one of the people that participated in that, they, they really need to search their soul because they're in danger of the hellfire, and there's just not a gentler way to put it. You're absolutely um, right. Celebrating something that God would absolutely conde uh, condemn as a sin, but they still have a right to do it. Like, I don't want government agents going in and stopping them from that. No matter how strongly I disagree with their stance, I still don't want their religious liberty trampled upon. Yeah, agreed. You know, so, so a lot of this comes back to, um, you know, what Jesus talked about with render to Caesar, word to Caesar's, and to God, what is God's. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this is that, that scripture is starting to be cited in, in some of these COVID religious liberty cases where the courts have ruled, you know, in our favor. You know, they, they've, right. they, they've pointed out that, uh, um, you know, the, the, the government has some, some limits on, on what it can do and it seems that some of the courts even seem to be acknowledging the truth that god is real and that this might be a problem but we're going to leave it up to him to judge rather than letting um the mm. the, the government step in so yeah when jesus said that you know he, he was recognizing a couple of different spheres of jurisdiction there are some things in which the government does have the legitimate right to step in and tell you what to do but then there are some things that you owe solely to god and because of that regardless of whether you screwed up or whether you've gotten it right it's off limits to the government you leave that up to god alone to judge. So I, I agree with you completely in, uh, you know, the case of, you know, the, the, the transgender uh, yeah, thing that, that you were talking about. I, I agree. I think that's that's heresy, that's sin, and I think God's going to deal with them for it uh, both in this life and in the next unless they repent. I really fear for them. Right. But the government doesn't have any business, uh, you know, stepping in and stopping that. So Right. I mean, churches uh, nowadays, especially in, in bluer states, have ceremonies all the time for gay weddings, which yeah, I believe is uh, just as much blasphemy as, as that is. But you know what? That's that's their right to do that if they want to do that. Agreed. Um, so I, I do kind of want to, because we haven't gotten nearly technical enough yet, uh, <laughs> I do want to get even more into the uh, the geek side of this on the procedural side. 
what does this say about the court going forward? Because I think th this being the first big religious liberty case that we've gotten since the new justice joined the court, what does this say about the makeup of the court and what we can expect in the future uh, on religious liberty cases and then, and then kind of as a whole as well? Okay. Uh, yeah, so that's, that, that's a good question. Um, so I think, uh, number one, what it says is that um, in religious liberty challenges to COVID-19 orders, um, if you have cases uh, that look like this case that has arisen out of New York, where there there is very there are very tight restrictions on religious liberty, and uh, the state is being very lenient with secular counterparts, um, the court is likely to step in and you know defend religious liberty, um, and and so they they are sending a message not only to Governor Cuomo but also to the entire country that you're not going to get away with it. Um, sadly, John Roberts dissented. And, you know, I've been trying to figure out Roberts. I, I just read a very lengthy biography on him, and even his closest friends refer to him as an enigma. And I think, I think that is a good way to put it, because sometimes it's very hard mm. to nail down exactly what's going on with him. I, I, I do think he's a conservative at heart, but I do think he also has a weakness. And in his role as a chief justice, he, he really is very sensitive to criticisms that the court is partisan, and so sometimes that can actually. Uh, bully him into uh, failing to step in when he should and stick up for constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. um, we saw that in the Obamacare case most specifically, and then the second Obamacare case where he reached even further to to, to save Obamacare from um, right. from, from an attack. And 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 in in two um, in the two religious liberty challenges involving COVID orders that came up before Barrett was confirmed, he was a swing vote and he he sided with the liberals. Um, so I think a lot of people are concerned about that. A lot of conservatives have been very disappointed in John Roberts, but I think this this pretty solid five justice conservative majority that we have now, um, I think it sends a signal to the country, both in religious liberty cases and in other constitutional cases, that um, we can relax a little bit. We, we we don't have to hold our breath and wonder which side of the bed John Roberts is going to wake up on on a given day. I mean, we have five justices that seem to be very concerned about doing the right thing. See, I, I do have a question about that, too, and I'm not disagreeing. I'm just asking because sure. I want to get your, your take on it. Uh, when you say solid five conservative uh, majority, how solid is Kavanaugh? That's a good question. I, I think he is solid. I think he I think he's more solid than a lot of people perceive. So, I mean, I think he's clearly more solid than Roberts. I don't yes. think anybody would argue that at this point, but is it really solid and safe is, is kind of my question. So, you know, the, the, the technical lawyer answer is, well, it depends. <laughs> that, that frustrates the heck out of everybody. And it understandably does. So, um, so Kavanaugh, he, I think, I think a lot of us were kind of rightly concerned about him at the beginning. And mm. I think he's, he's not, he's definitely not as solid as Thomas. Um, but it's strange. In, in case, in certain cases, he's been more solid than Alito, and then in other yeah. cases, he's, he's been less. Um, Kavanaugh is a little bit more complicated. He, so, so by his own confession and by the confession of the law clerks that have worked for him, including Judge Walker, who mm -hmm. uh, wrote probably one of the strongest uh, religious liberty opinions on, on on a COVID challenge that the country has seen. Right. Um, they they have described. Uh, Kavanaugh as a textualist first. So, you know, unlike Scalia, he might not put as much emphasis on original intent, but he takes the words of the Constitution very, very seriously, and same things like statutes. Um, so if you've got to dig into what 
was going on inside the head of the authors, he may not be as keen on that, but as long as it's actually in the law itself, then he's going to more or less stay with that one. Yes, yes. So he, he starts with the text first, and then after he goes to the text, he looks at... Um, he looks at history, so he does look back, you know, around the founding era. I, I think he might not find their opinion as controlling as, a, like, Thomas or Scalia would. Okay. But he's still, you know, he's starting with the text. Then he goes to history as his primary outside source, so that's still good. Um, he looks at the structure of the Constitution as a whole to try to figure out, you know, when you take this particular provision together, you know, with everything, uh, you know, you want to make sure you get the context right. And I think up until that point, all of that is fine. And then finally, the last step in his analysis is what does precedent say? And that becomes problematic when precedent has gotten screwed up. Um, so at the end of the yeah. day, he, he walks through a problem in that order, and I think he puts, um, he puts the weight in the order of things that I just described him in. And so sometimes that leads him to make very, very good decisions. You know, even sometimes he, he lands to Alito's right. But I think what people are concerned about is sometimes um, it's like, I'll take the text of the Constitution, original intent, and precedent, which includes bad precedent, and I'll throw them in a blender and see what comes out. You know, so sometimes that means he comes out to, like, Alito's left. Sometimes Alito's right, depending on what's going on. So basically, if he's weighing those in terms of priority, he tends to be pretty good. If it happens to be a case where he just kind of like, all right, we're just going to consider all of those things and uh, shake up a bag and whichever one we happen to pull out, that's the one that we're going to go with this time. That's where he starts getting uh, a little bit less secure because he might draw out precedent as opposed to whatever else was in the bag. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I've read some of his opinions. He, he thinks the judicial power clause of Article 3 does give the... The, the the judiciary the power to make binding precedent and I okay think that's why he feels this is constitutional duty to kind of adhere to precedent um I, I commend him for trying to ask the fundamental question of you know how do i resolve this conflict between what the constitution says and what the courts have held I mean, he's, he's trying to take a crack at it and it's something yeah. that judges don't do a lot nowadays um i do think he gets it uh, i think he's a little off in that regard mm -hmm. um because I, I tend to agree with Clarence Thomas that if there's a clear conflict between precedent, what the Constitution says, your oath is to the Constitution. So that's why, you know, you, mm. you just you go with what the Constitution says if you can't reconcile the two. You know, that's what I love about Justice Thomas. He basically says precedent is useless <laughs> yes. because he's like because uh, the only time anyone brings it out is when they agree with it and they disregard it when they don't. So Bingo. it's basically worthless. Oh, yes. Agreed. You know, and the folks that rely on precedent to disregard the Constitution, the funny thing is, they say, well, this is about the rule of law. I'm like, if it was about the rule of law, you would stop being so selective in which ones you choose. You know, right. you'd apply it even-handedly across the board. Well, um, and that, that becomes the issue with precedent as well, is that precedent becomes the, uh, the poison root of the, the poison tree, which yes. leads to poison fruit. Bingo. Um, and that's the problem, is that when all of a sudden that becomes your... Uh, your guiding compass, I guess, as opposed to the Constitution itself, then you wind up just error begetting more error, and it just continues on. So yes. the doctrine of precedent, I mean, in my opinion, should just be disregarded completely. But, you know, I, I know that there's a lot in the legal field that are different about that. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, this has been a good discussion, and if nothing else, this speaks well to what we can expect from the court in the future. It makes me feel a little bit better about some of the decisions we're going to have. You know, maybe we wind up with some procedural stuff when it comes to government regulation that I don't necessarily agree with the yeah. court on with this makeup. But it seems like on religious liberty, 
the court is going to be a much more reliable backstop than it has been in the past. Yes, I, I agree with you completely on that. Um, you know, even within the conservative block of justices, I I tend to think that Thomas is really the only one that you can rely on to get it right uh, in, you know, just about every case. And, right. And obviously because he's human, he makes mistakes too sometimes, but it, sure. it's, it's pretty rare. Um, I really wish we had a court of six Justice Thomases. We we don't. Uh, the the rest. You oh, know, I would totally not. be in favor with that. I. Yeah. In fact, since the Constitution gives no stipulation on how large the court has to be, I'm cool with just parsing it down to Thomas. <laughs> yes. Fire the rest of them. Make Thomas Chief Justice, and he, he right. the Supreme Court. No, that's, no, that's no, no hate. You know, towards uh, a ACB or Gorsuch, but you know, I'm fine good. with just being Thomas. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, but but I'm I will kidding. tell you what it's. Uh, it, you know, th this court, though, I think it is, um, it, it, it's a completely standard deviation better than any court that we have seen in the past. You know, for, for a very long time, um, actually from probably about the time of the, the end of the Civil War up mm -hmm. until probably about Roe versus Wade, we had about 100 years of the courts losing their grounding in the text of the law, and they were kind of really making things up as they went. And and people didn't really wake up at you know at that until Roe versus Wade came along and you just, and we found out oh my gosh like based on the words due process of law that means you can kill a baby in your first trimester maybe in the second probably not the third how in the world did you get there you know and then so since then conservatives have been making an effort to push it back. Um, well, I think but, it's kind of like and I, I I'm not trying to I'm not trying to justify us taking our eye off the ball in that sense. But it's kind of like when uh, a kid's not doing anything and so you take your eye off of them, it's not until they do something really bad, like break a lamp or something, <laughs> that you think, oh, wait a second, maybe we should be keeping an eye on that. You yes. know? And I think that that's what happened is it was this sort of slow degradation over that period of time. Uh, I blame a lot of that on Hugo Black from Alabama. But anyway, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, it was so, sort of that slow walk and then all of a sudden Roe v. Wade was like the lamp shattering in the background that everybody was like, wait, well, wait a second. Yes, yes, um, agreed. But, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, uh, you're, well, I was going to say, probably from that, about that point up until, um, you know, up until now, uh, conservatives have been trying to get better justices back on the court. But, you know, we, we took a step towards fixing that, but probably from about the Reagan years up until mm -hmm. now, what we had was a few reliable conservatives and then a couple of justices that were appointed by Republican presidents who, after they got there, we found out that they're pretty wishy-washy guys like, right. like O'Connor and Kennedy, um, yeah, especially those two. And then so it, it left us uh, with a situation where, you know, you got a very clear liberal block, a very clear conservative block, and then the swing votes in the middle. Um, I think for the first time, uh, definitely since Roe versus Wade and even probably far back before that, we now have a very solid majority of justices who I would describe as conservative. And, and I would even count Roberts in that equation. He is a conservative at heart. He, he's not like Kennedy where, you know... You're far he, more generous than I am. It, yeah. It, well, I, I've been saying we should just, especially <laughs> after this one, we should just start referring to Roberts as one of the liberal justices. Like, I, I'm at well, that point right now. Yeah, I hear you. He, he, he is not jurisprudentially liberal, but where he buckles is, you know, with the criticism of... Uh, of the courts, and that, that's what can make. Well, see, compromise. but that—that's what gets under my skin because I do have a lot of lawyer friends that that suggest this, and I have no reason to believe that they're incorrect. I think that they're probably right. It's like, well, it's only the big, like, sweeping cases that he winds up buckling on. I was like, 
Well, yeah, but isn't that kind of the ones that you would wish that he would stand his ground on? Oh, like, yeah, bingo, bingo. I, I'd be fine if on some of the procedural stuff he was less reliable if he actually just, when there's an obvious constitutional violation, says, no, we're sticking with the Constitution. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and to his I mean, I mean, that's like having a quarterback that's really good at, you know, uh, those short passes, but when it comes time to actually make the game-winning play, he can't hit the broadside of a barn. Like, I, I'd rather have the guy that can is reliable when you really need him. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think you're right. And I think, um, I think Chief Justice Roberts, in some misguided attempts to protect the court's image, he, he compromises. Now, what makes him different... Uh, than some of his liberal predecessors, especially guys like Anthony Kennedy, is he doesn't mm -hmm. just make stuff up out of thin air. All right, and that's I mean, you know, Kennedy, Bridgefield versus Hodges. Um, you know, you could have dumped a box of alphabets on the table and had a higher chance of having a coherent legal opinion than what Kennedy wrote. Yeah, it was just that that's awful. fair. Um, it was applesauce. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Roberts isn't like that, but you know, he'll he'll look for excuses sometimes to go for you know the narrow way out, and he'll he'll raise points that on their face are legitimate, but when you look a little deeper, it's like, you know, with all due respect, Mr. Chief Justice, that was kind of the coward's way out. You should have really put your foot down, held your ground, and stuck up for, you know, the party that was in the right, um, even if it would have given the court some criticism. Uh, so, so, I mean, I, I agree with you, Rob, Roberts is problematic, but, but, but even putting him aside, um, the remaining five, yeah, you know, th there are times where, um, with the exception of Thomas, I think the others can stumble. Well, maybe not Barrett. We have yet to see what she's going to do. Right. Um, it's way too early to give an opinion one way or the other on her, I think. Yeah. But, but, but I will say, probably for the first time in a very long time, we have at least five justices. Well, and, and, and I'm going to count Roberts because he agrees with this in theory, who agree that it's the judiciary's job to say what the law is, not what the law should be. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that and, is that is important. Yes. And, and that, I mean, if, if you can you know, get the judiciary consistently um, applying that principle, then Roe versus Wade goes away. Obergefell versus Hodges goes away. A right. lot of these, a lot of these cases have been so problematic for, for, you know, uh, for, for the civil rights that we care about. A lot of those go away. So um, are, is the court perfect? No, heck, I mean, and, and do I wish some of them were a little more solid? Yes. But I'll tell you what, this is a better court than I've ever seen in, you know, my lifetime. And, and I think probably since at least uh, before the New Deal, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm messing my words up here. Um, at least since the New Deal era, uh, I think that was another big milestone is when um, FDR threatened to pack the court. You know, some of the justices started bending and they, you know. Right, which was so radical, his own Democrat-controlled Senate said, no, we ain't doing that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um but yeah, I'd say this is the best court that we've seen in a long time. I think we've got at least five that are going to be pretty good on sticking up for you know what's right and what the truth is, um, and applying the law to the facts as it stands, and and being willing to go back and undo bad precedent when it actually conflicts with the Constitution. They they might not do it as fast as I would like them to do. Uh, Thomas is the only one who, in my opinion, gets right to it and get right gets right to the heart mm -hmm. of the matter. Um, but for the first time, we, we've got a majority that is actually willing to listen and willing to walk through the process of going there. So. Right, that, and that is incredibly important. And I would just say to uh, all of our listeners and audience, pray like you've never prayed that nothing happens to Justice Thomas yes. if we have Joe Biden in office, because that would be an unmitigated disaster. Now, obviously, we don't want anything bad to happen to any Supreme Court justice, regardless of how good or terrible they are. Agreed. But, man... 
having Joe Biden, and by that I mean Kamala Harris, replace <laughs> Justice Thomas would just be an unmitigated disaster that could could hurt the country for a long, long time. And, oh, and he boy. is in his 80s, so um, we've got to you know keep an eye on that. But uh, Matt, thank you so much for being here with us. And uh, you know, is there anything else you'd like to add before we take off here? Uh, just want to underscore those last words that you said about praying, um, well, especially for Justice Thomas, but for the court as a whole. Sure. Um, yeah. Because uh, you know, we we finally, you know, we have been fighting, and, and the Republicans and conservatives have spent so much political capital on trying to fix the courts, and I think we're now finally there. So, so number one, um, I, you know, as a fellow Christian, I'd say if you, if you want to look deeper at it, um, part of the reason why justice stumbles, because ultimately it's a spiritual battle. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if I was Satan, I would be spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to manipulate the U.S. Supreme Court, because they are the ones that unleashed, you know, the murder of over 60 million innocent babies on the entire country, when the vast majority of states at the time had outlawed that practice. Um, and, and those nine justices, they're, they're human, they have sinful natures just like ours. So um, I'm glad that we have justices that have the theory of constitutional interpretation right, but now they have to have the character you know, to do the right thing, including giving up the opportunity to take power when it's not theirs if they know they can get away with it. You know, mm -hmm. and that, that is, uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Frodo with Lord of the Rings when he finally gets to Mount Doom. He has right. the ring of power in his hand. He, he has the opportunity to destroy it. We need justices who will cast that thing into the fire and not think twice about it. And oh my gosh, I just thought of a, the best gif. I'm going to have that, <laughs> that scene where he's holding it over the fires of Mount Doom and on the ring it says precedent. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. I've got to make that now. All right, Good Matt. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we always appreciate you coming by. Well, thank you, Caleb. All right. We'll be back in just a minute on tactics. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And welcome back. And for our daily dose of stupid today, uh, you know, usually... Usually our daily dose of stupid is kind of funny and goofy, and it's, it's usually stupid but harmless stupid, or at the very least, stupid that doesn't have a direct harm on somebody. So it may be something stupid with someone's ideology, and the ideology itself may be harming people, but not on the broad scale. Unfortunately, today is not that. Unfortunately, today there is a real bit of stupid by government officials that is having a very clear and very obvious effect on the average person. So there's a lady named Angela Marsden, and she is the owner of the Pineapple Hill Saloon, which, by the way, is a restaurant in California. And for those of you who do not know this, California restaurants have recently said that not only do they have to close their indoor dining, but because of the recent uptick in cases, they, they have to even close their outdoor dining. So even if they had tables six feet apart, outside, all of that, and they, they've, uh, many of them have invested in this. I was watching a clip the other day of one guy who actually spent thousands of dollars in outdoor heaters just to try to comply with this, and they tell him, oh, well, sorry, we're going to shut down the outside too. And so this has really sort of hit a lot of these business owners and, and hit their investments, and, and especially at a time where businesses are losing money and can't really afford a whole bunch of extra expenses, now they've cut their legs out from under them yet again. And this is what I was talking about to where it is stupid, but this is a stupid that really isn't funny. It's a stupid that is hurting people in a very 
a one-to-one. -one. You don't have to draw a whole bunch of connections or whatever. I mean, you can look at this is the policy, and the cause of it is these people that are unca uh, incapable of keeping their business alive and feeding their families. And unfortunately, this is the way that it has been for thousands upon thousands of Americans, but specifically ones in blue states like California. And this is just a great example of that, unfortunately. So this is the lady I was telling you about, Angela Marsden, who's the owner of the Pineapple Hill Saloon in California. And she's kind of demonstrating in this video why the policy not only doesn't make sense in the, the sense of, you know, the science isn't with it or what she's saying that even based on the way that they're applying it unevenly, the policy still doesn't make sense. Watch. I'm losing everything. Everything I own is being taken away from me. And they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio. And people wonder why I'm protesting and why I have had enough. <laughs> they have not given us money and they have shut us down. We cannot survive. My staff cannot survive. Look at this. So you can see that's her outdoor dining patio for her. Tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face. That's safe. This is safe. You know, that's just such a, and it breaks your heart, but it's just such a perfect microcosm of the idiocy of some of these governors, and in some cases, our governor as well, that it just shows the idiocy that they have, that it's not an equal application of the law. This is a person that runs a business that isn't doing this for free. She's doing it because it's how she provides for herself and her family, presumably. And for those of you who might just be listening on the podcast, I'll go ahead and describe the sort of scene that she... Uh, just displayed there, you can see it on that video. She has a dining area that the, the tables are six feet apart and it's outside and I don't know, maybe that holds 30-ish people at the absolute most. And then she pans over and there's a dining area that's set up for the people that are working on this movie studio that is like at the very least six, seven, eight times larger than the one that she, right next to her business. I mean, maybe 30 yards apart. So it's, it's dangerous for her to do that. It's not dangerous for the movie studio to do that. And why is that? Because believe the science, guys. We've got to believe the science. We've got to believe that this virus is just too dangerous for people to eat outside. But, you know, if you're making a movie, then the virus is going to leave you alone. I mean, the my see, here's the thing. The virus is a movie lover. And so because of that, it's not going to do anything that might interrupt a movie, but it, but it hates restaurant goers. And so because of that, if you're uh, six feet apart from somebody outside in a dining patio, then the virus is just going to leap right over to the next person. There's, it was never about the science. And this is a great example of that. It was never about the science. It was never about it being too dangerous. It was never about an abundance of caution. It has always been about politicians covering their own butts. That's all it's ever been about. So politicians can look at this and say, this is a great crisis and look what I've done to try to stop it. And when 
the case numbers are going up, they're saying, yeah, but look what the measures that I've done to try to slow it down. Now, whether or not those measures are actually slowing it down or not, that doesn't seem to be the case if you're looking at states that did have shutdowns versus ones that didn't. We're all seeing basically the same spike, regardless of what the policy is, because the government doesn't control the virus, despite what people will tell you. But that's the point. They're like, believe the science, and if you don't believe it, you hate grandma and want her to die. No, this person just wants to provide for the family. That's really all it comes down to. And you guys are punishing her for something she has no control over. But the movie company, yeah, they can do it. That's fine. Because they're an essential business. Look, it is the height of arrogance to assume that you can say what is an essential business and what isn't an essential business. And really, this is the same kind of mentality. This didn't start with the coronavirus. Governments have been doing this forever. It's the same mentality when the banks failed or the auto manufacturers failed and they were like, well, those guys are too big to fail, so we've got to go in and give them a ton of money from the government and bail them out. No! When my business goes under, you don't show up and bail me out with a bunch of government money. When my old bank here, right in the, the middle of Alabama, First Community Bank, if it were to go under, you wouldn't be doing that. But when it's Wells Fargo, yeah, we'll write billions of dollars worth in checks to bail them out. It's the same thing. Government favors the big guys and always has. That's why I'm a proponent of small government. Small government favors nobody. Small government, you don't even have the incentive to try and do something like this or try to get government money because it doesn't do that for anyone. I don't want them to bail out the little guys, but I also don't want them to bail out the big guys. But see, this is even worse. And the reason that it's worse, and she actually mentions this in the video, that they haven't, they haven't given us any money, they haven't given us any relief, is because it's one thing for your stupid business practices to land you in the red. Like, if, if Wells Fargo is doing a whole bunch of dumb business practices that results in them being deep in debt, you know, that's a bad thing, but ultimately that was their fault. When the government mandates that you have to do this bad business practice, in this case, shutting down your business for three or four months, then the government does owe you something. Because just like they can't take your land away from you without compensating, they can't take time away from you either. They can't mandate that you are not allowed to go out and make gain for yourself without recompensing you for that, which is the reason that I say they should just not have a shutdown. Because I don't want the government to bail them out either. I just want people to be able to make a living and, and run their business the way that they were supposed to from the beginning. That's all I'm asking for. And it is just so heartbreaking to see this woman who, you know, this is a business that she's probably put in a lot of time and effort and money and investment. And uh, she's tried to do what the government asked. She tried to scale the restaurant back. She closed her indoor dining. She's tried to comply every step of the way. And every single time she does, the government just gives her a big middle finger. But right next door to her, because there's a big business that they're too big to fail and they're more important than you, those guys can set up a dining area six or seven times the size of yours because, see, they're, they're big business. Don't give me this crap about Democrats caring about the little guy. I mean, if, if there was ever a more obvious example 
of this, then I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if one even exists. I mean, th this is a small business owner who is pointing literally next door to her own restaurant with a glimmering example of how government cares way more about the big businesses than it does the little guys. Because here's the thing. When all the smoke is cleared, when this virus is over and we return to life as normal, which despite a what a lot of people are saying, I think that that actually is going to happen. When all of that takes place and the smoke is settled, there will be a ton of businesses that went under. Mostly small businesses. But you know what's going to happen? A lot of other small businesses are going to come in and replace it because that's how a market works. But it doesn't change the fact that even if it winds up being a lot of the same people that just open new businesses elsewhere, it doesn't change the fact that they lost a significant portion of their life and their livelihood to this virus, but the big companies didn't. And the reason that this is such an important point is because to the government bureaucrat that's making these decisions, it just doesn't affect them. Because when that smoke clears, there are going to be restaurants for them. Like I said, new restaurants will open up to replace the old ones. Market demand will take care of that. So it doesn't really matter to the government official. The only person it matters to is the person that spent a significant portion of their life building a business only to have it snatched away from them from people that don't care. You know what would affect those politicians, and especially in a state like California that runs off of the movie industry? You know what would affect them? The movie industry going under. That's what would affect them. And because they see it as something that affects them, we have to protect that. You see, that's their ox that's getting gored, and when that happens, oh, we got to make some exceptions here. If all of a sudden an entire industry tanked, oh, that would hurt a lot of regular people, don't get me wrong. But the reason that they're more concerned about that is, you see, that person, there's a lot more people that are voting that that would affect. Small business owners vote too, sure, but the point is they're trying to keep those people happy because they got to protect their phony baloney jobs. That's really all the politician cares about in most of these cases. And that's why it's really no sweat off their back if this woman loses her business. Oh, well. You know, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet, right? Except to that person, it's really important. That's what the politicians aren't seeing here. And that's why I say just let people make their own decisions. Look, even in places with no uh, mandatory shutdowns of any kind, this has really affected these people because since the virus is out there, people just tend to naturally not go out as often as they did. And that's okay. That's their decision. Let people make their own decisions. Is the virus still going to hurt businesses even when they do make their own decisions? Yeah, because people will be more cautious. But it won't strangle them. Do you know that since this whole thing has started, since we have seen this pandemic take hold of our economy, you know what businesses aren't struggling? Walmart, Amazon, Zoom, Google, YouTube. Basically, all of the big companies are doing really well, especially if they happen to be involved in either the creation of PPEs, some kind of telecommunication, 
or as we started out, a delivery service like Amazon that's delivering goods to people. But there have been thousands of business that have just gone under. Mom and pop places that they weren't allowed to keep their doors open. And in the meantime, Amazon replaced a lot of their customer base. And so now they don't have the ability to do that. They don't have the ability to compete because Amazon just got so far ahead of them because of how they've grown. I think the last statistic I saw was like 400% in online sales. So don't give me this garbage about Democrats caring about the little guy and wanting to make sure that their jobs are protected. They simply don't. It's all smoke and mirrors. Because Gavin Newsom and the mayor of L.A., the movie industry going under would hurt them. And that's why they are very concerned and must keep that open. Whether or not this woman loses her business, eh, not really much of a concern for us. Whether or not she loses her business doesn't affect us. And they're doing all this despite the fact that it's not going to keep one person safe from the virus. Look, the thing about central planning is that it always benefits people at the center. The thing about big government is that it benefits people in the government. And that's why these people are proponents of it. Because they're in the center, and they're in the government, and so that's why they like that planning. You know, works for us, screw everybody else. That seems to be the way that Democrats think about these things. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. And welcome back. Thank you so much for being with us. The Chaplain's Report today, we are going to be continuing our series on the book of First Samuel. So for those of you that don't remember the, the last one or, or weren't here for the last chaplain's report, so King Saul right now is plotting against David. And so what's going on here is you're kind of seeing the fallout in the start of this. We've already seen Saul try to take David's life on multiple occasions and see uh, up until this point in the story, it's all been kind of covert-ish. I wouldn't say completely covert, but Saul's been kind of trying to kill David and he's not been real covert about it, but he's still like allowing him to come into the palace or whatever. And so there's this weird like limbo that they're in where Saul can't really decide whether David is an ally or somebody that he wants to kill. And this is kind of the culmination in, in 1 Samuel 19 verses 11 through 17, where Saul has clearly made his decision by this point And David, he is going to be treating as an enemy from this point forward. So we see right here in that verse. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, informed him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. 
And Machal took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothing. When Saul sent messengers to take David, he said, he, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, so that I might put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Machal, Why have you betrayed me like this, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Machal said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go, why should I put you to death? There's a couple of really interesting parts of this. The first one that I notice is David, who is seemingly based on everything that we know about the scripture, someone that is very, very loyal to God and believes in monotheism and, and very closely follows that. I find it very bizarre that there is a household idol in the house. I don't know if that's like a weird translation thing. Uh, I mean, that that is the New American Standard Bible, so I assume that is an accurate translation. I don't know if it just says idol and it just means statue, and it could just be a statue of anything, not actually a god. But I find that very, very bizarre. Um, but there's really not a good explanation for that. The Bible doesn't go into any detail as to why that is in David's house or, or what. So that's something that I find interesting, but there's not really a whole lot of room to talk about it on. The big point of this... I think, is Machal really loves her husband and is willing to put her own life on the line if it means taking care of him. I think that that's actually very impressive. That when all of this happens, she's like, no, David, you need to go now. And maybe the reason she's so adamant about that is because she is Saul's daughter. Maybe she knows his personality a little better than David. Maybe she knows how he is. Maybe she understands that Saul's not playing around and he will kill David if given the opportunity. And because of that, and because she kind of seems to know what kind of man Saul is, I find that, frankly, even more impressive that she decides to defy him and do what she can to save her husband's life. That it, that's a good woman. I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, that is a woman that really loves her husband, and you have to remember that she is living in a time where women were not really seen as equals. She is living in a culture that does value women, certainly more than their paganistic counterparts. But, you know, you couldn't even see the testimony of a woman in court as credible unless she had multiple witnesses. And so, really, I do think that what's going on here is that Machal is just doing absolutely everything she can to make sure her husband stays safe. And that is an admirable quality in a wife, especially when you, she is willing to defy not just a king, that would be impressive enough, but her king and her own father, whom she is related to. And she's willing to do all that in spite of that because she loves her husband and wants to make sure that he is okay. So... Fellas, if you're looking for a mate, find you somebody that loves you like Machal loves David. The second part of this is that Machal does sort of cook up this scheme that's going on here, and, and I get it. I mean, it, it makes sense that if she is concerned about David's well-being, that she does this to, I guess, buy time so that they don't know that he's missing. And then she lies to Saul about it. I don't necessarily condone the lying, and I don't think that the Bible is trying to condone the lying either. 
In fact, I think that it would have shown a great deal more faith in God that God was going to take care of her if she had just straight up said to Saul, because you, you see in that last part there, and in fact, it may just be best if I go ahead and pull it up again. If you look at the last part of the verse there in verse 17, where she says to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? So what seems to be implied here is that Machal, there's a lot going on in her head right now. And that's understandable. I mean, her father just tried to kill her husband. So that's understandable. But when she is saying that why, he said, let me go, why should I put you to death? It seems to imply that what she is telling Saul what happened is that she's not the one that told David to get out of here. What happened is that, oh, well, Dad, I was, I was going to try to stop him, but he basically threatened me, and if I didn't let him go, that he was going to kill me. So I let him go out the window, and he escaped. Is she doing this because she knows what Saul is capable of? She seems to certainly know what Saul is capable of when she tells David, hey, you better get the heck out of Dodge, because he's coming after you. And frankly, it's surprising that David would even need that encouragement, considering Saul's already tried to kill him at least three times. But nonetheless, here we see Machal doing this, and I think it's because she knew her dad. And she knew that he was willing to kill David, and he was also willing to kill her if he believed that she betrayed him. And so because of that, she creates this lie to sort of persuade him that, no, I didn't betray you, Dad. David left, and he threatened to kill me if I tried to stop him. But that's not what happened. I think Machal's love of David is very strong and very admirable. I do, however, think her faith in God needs a little work. Now, I don't know exactly how God would have handled the situation. If it had been the reverse, I don't know if Saul really would have killed her, or if somehow God would have protected Machal. But I do know that... I, I find it hard to believe that if Machal had shown that much faith in God, that there wouldn't have been something happen after that, that she would have been talked about as a hero in the scripture afterward, that uh, she would have been given, even if she had been put to death, she would have been remembered as an incredibly brave woman who did everything that she could to protect her husband, but also believed in God and had such a rock-solid faith in him that she did not fear what her father, the king, could do to her. And another thing that I want to mention about this, and I understand this is jumping ahead, but I think this is a good point to bring this up. Machal saves David's life. There's no question about it. And I think that it's fair to say that God saved David's life by having Machal do all this and putting the right people in the right place. Who knows, maybe this is even the reason that we see Saul's younger daughter, Machal, as opposed to the one that Saul originally promised to David, Maybe this is the reason that God had it worked out to where Machal was going to be the one that he married. We don't know. But I do think that it's incredibly sad that David doesn't go back for her. I admire her staying behind and trying to protect David and buying him as much time as possible. I really do. But I think there's some personal failings on David's part. And I say this because of what we know about David afterward. We know that at one point he gets into a fight with Machal to the point to where he doesn't really even have much of a relationship with her anymore. 
that that was a fight that happens much later when the Ark of the Covenant is reco- is returned to Jerusalem. And we also know that David takes another wife while he is gone on this journey that he has just been sent on where he's running from Saul. He takes Abigail. And then we know that he takes another wife after that. And then there's the whole business with Bathsheba and so on and so forth. And David had quite a few wives. Machal was his first. Machal was the wife of his youth. And it is incredibly sad that he does not go back for her. Because do you really believe, especially with God's promises, that if David had waited, you know, two or three weeks and then snuck back in and, and rescued Machal and had her travel around with him as they're on the run from her father, don't you think that God would have facilitated that if that's where David's heart was? Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be down on David. He's one of my favorite Bible characters. I love David. I love his character. But I think that his biggest weakness was with women. That instead of, you know, clinging to and, and sort of knitting himself to the wife of his youth, he wanted a whole bunch of women. And I understand that the law permitted that at the time, but that doesn't mean it was God's ideal. And that's something that Jesus points out later on in, in Matthew 19, where he says, God's original design is a man, singular, shall be joined to his wife, singular. And the two, two, become one flesh. And so God's ideal if David was living the way that God prescribed in in this particular facet of his life, would have been for him to be married and committed to Machal, and that's it. And I do find it sad that David doesn't go charging back in to rescue her. I understand, as a practical standpoint, holding off for a little while. I I really do. I, I don't think, I would not have thought any badly of David whatsoever if he waits like a month for things to cool down and then slips in and, and sneaks Machal out. You know, that, that would have been perfectly acceptable, but the fact that he doesn't go back after her, I don't know. I just, I, I really think that it bothers me, and I think that it is indicative of the fact that David's not really all that committed to her. And that is incredibly sad. But I think that really our takeaway from all of this should be, whether you're looking at it from a child's perspective or from David's perspective, having a spouse is a great blessing. But ultimately, it's a secondary commitment. Ultimately, it is not as important as your first relationship, which is the one between you and your creator. In Machal's case, she really loved David and was willing to go to the, you know, to the nth degree and put herself in danger. But she didn't seem to have enough faith in God, and her relationship with God was not rock solid enough to, to plainly speak the truth when Saul asked her to believe that God was going to protect her in that moment. And on the reverse, it seems like David's relationship with God is is fairly solid. But ultimately, he fails in one area of his life where it comes to staying married and committed to just one woman, which is what God would have intended. And if that aspect of his relationship had been better, Maybe his relationship with God would have been better, too. I certainly know that it would have been in the case of Bathsheba. If he had really been committed to one wife and didn't want anybody else and wasn't looking at other people, that would have been a big asset in the biggest mistake of David's life. And so, for those of you that have a spouse, you know, I, I am glad that that is something that the Lord has seen fit to bless you with. And, and maybe he even will me one day. I don't know. But ultimately as wonderful a thing as having a really good godly spouse that helps you get to heaven is, 
we have to remember that it is a secondary commitment. No commitment on this earth. Father, mother, brother, child, sister, whatever trumps our relationship with Jesus Christ. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.